Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. The cool thing, and I think what got me hooked is the process of failing, 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 failing until you, until you don't, right? And then yeah. you finally succeed because there are some moves that you, you can practice them for like three months just together, right? Like literally three hours a day, four hours a day, you just do one thing and you try to try to try. That has always been me. I think it's, it's, it's part of me. And I think that's why I ended up to be a decent entrepreneur because I get obsessed by things. And until I get it right, I just uh, push myself to the limits, which obviously sometimes is not good because, you know, you can hurt yourself. And I think I learned mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> actually, when I'm talking to you, I realize the similarities actually haven't changed. I'm still my, I'm, I'm still 12 years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, try too much and then uh, break myself. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Mateo, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. You were telling me you are experiencing some heavy snow. So I think, thank you for taking this time to have the podcast with me. Fortunately, you don't have to do a podcast outside in the middle of the snow. So that's a good thing. So, you know, yes. I wanted to start by asking you where in the world you were born and raised and how that ended up influencing the choices that you ended up making with your life and your career. Yeah, so I was raised in Italy um, from low-income family. So Italy doesn't really scream opportunities when it comes down to a job, for example, or starting your own business, or especially if you grow outside of privilege, it's really hard to um, get out of privilege. Very much, very much opposite from the old American dream, let's say. Um, a lot of people see Italy as a beautiful country, very rich, but in reality, yeah, I mean, if you come for tourism, you see the facade, but behind is, uh, is really hard. And, you know, and a lot of people struggle to actually find jobs. Mm. And so I just, I just wanted more. Um, so I think once I finished my degree, I got a degree in psychology and I wanted to see the world because I never traveled anywhere. I literally never been anywhere. Like I never took an airplane in my life and I never been outside of Italy, not even in Europe. And um, I moved to New York to become a professional dancer. I mean, to follow my dreams of becoming a professional dancer. Mm. 
Well, okay, that alone raises so many questions. Uh, one, growing up around your household or just even in the Italian culture in general, uh, particularly when you are not coming from privileged circumstances and you're coming from, you know, sort of relatively poor environment as you described it, what was the narrative in your household about making your way in the world? Like, what was the, the conversation about education? And then what does that look like across the Italian culture in general? Okay, so my household is a bit... Um, well, my parents are very young. My mom was 17. My dad was 18 when uh, my mom got pregnant. They were both into... They were both in, following at the time um, in the early 80s, uh, the hippie movements. So I, I was born in a, in a commune at the time. Um, my dad as well had mental illness issues. So he ended up, uh, you know, robbing banks and like life of crime, let's say. So my upbringing has been a bit of turbulence. Like I didn't have, it was mainly survival to be honest with you. Uh, but, um, I think the pain came from my mom put me in a really good school when I was, uh, was in high school and just seeing everyone else that had more. Right. And you just, you just want more. You know, you just want, and you realize it's like, I cannot count on anyone just by myself. Mm. So I think, I don't know. I met people coming from similar situation to me. They didn't do what I did. Right. They just, some, some of them ended up in prison. Some of them, they just, you know, let life slide by. Mm -hmm. I don't know what triggered in me something, um, but something did. And suddenly I was. I was like, I want more. And, uh, if I want this, I have to take it on my own. And no one else is going to help me. Not children, my dad, my mom loved it to bits, but I mean, she was, <laughs> she was a hippie and, and still in many positive ways is. But, um, so I decided to kind of start, you know, hustling very early, making money. Um, did some legal stuff, did some less legal stuff during my early <laughs> teenage years. Um, and then I fell in love with, uh, with psychology. I don't know why. I just uh, started falling in love with how the brain works. Also, maybe because I think I was always trying to figure out what was going on around me. Um, and uh, turned out, actually, my dad was bipolar. So we actually suffering from mental illness. And a lot of things that he did was because of their, his mental illnesses. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I got a degree. And uh, breakdancing was a way for me to get out of trouble, to be honest with you. Like it sounds yeah. literally like kind of cliche, but I started breakdancing and then became a dancer afterwards. After, after I got injured, I decided to still staying in the world of dancing, but uh, not breakdancing anymore, but, uh, you know, going like hip hop, like normal, normal dance. Mm -hmm. Um, not, not on the ground, not solely yeah. on the ground, uh, and without acrobatics, but that for me was just a way to get out of trouble. And I was lucky to meet my first teacher that was literally taking kids uh, from the streets and uh, give them an opportunity to spend their time not, uh, you know, committing the stuff that we were doing, like yeah. breaking shit. And <laughs> yeah, so yeah, no, honestly, that's it. That, that was it. And, um, and when I want, and I wanted to see the world. Yeah, I just wanted to see the world. And I moved to New York because I wanted to be, I was like, I want to be that. I want to be a dancer. I know I have a degree in psychology, but I wanted to be a dancer. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll definitely come back to the breakdancing bit. 
Um, because I'm pretty sure that's mm-hmm. exactly why I said yes when Michael sent your story over. I was like, right, somebody who's good <laughs> at something unusual. Um, one of the things I wonder, like, you know, you mentioned this very sort of turbulent atmosphere. How old were you when you realized that the life that your dad was leading was one of crime? And also, are we talking like mafia or just, you know, petty bank robbery? Uh, uh bank robbery at gunpoint. So okay. that type of bank robbery and embezzlements with, uh, with Kamara at the time, which is a type of mafia. Um, one, one of the, one of the, the type of mafia in Italy. The, the biggest one, I think, which is one from yeah. Calabria. Um, I was, I wasn't born in the South. I was born in the North, but obviously mafia is, is everywhere. Um, so I got involved with a criminal organization and we had to go into protective, some of kind of protective custody for about six months, which I wasn't aware. I, I didn't know. I thought we were moving because there was an infestation in our house. That's what they told me. It's like they were lying to me constantly. And as a kid, you start to kind of understanding things, but you're not. And then I think when I was about 15 years old, no, 16 years old, my dad uh, left, left us, like disappeared, not died, just uh, left us, for, left my mom for another woman and um, got her pregnant as well with the kids. And my mom finally confessed all the shadows you know, that I had in my mind and told me actually all the real stuff that was happening behind the scene. In fairness to my mom, she protected us a lot. And this is why I had a good childhood. Like actually, really, I really good childhood. I was living in a lie, but um, I had a pretty good, beside the beatings, obviously, but <laughs> I, had a, I, had, I had an okay childhood. I had, a, I had a, my child was happy a lot of the times, you know, I didn't see a lot. My mom protected us a lot. So, one other thing, like, I realize this is a, a weird question and, and because I'm always no, curious no. about reality versus perception, right? My entire experience mm-hmm. of, you know, what the mafia is, is basically movies like The Godfather and Goodfellas. But there's one line That's in funny, particular yeah. from Goodfellas that I, that stood out to me. And I wanted to know how true this is, um, where Ray Liotta is describing why people went to the mafia. And he said, basically, the wise guys are like police for people who can't go to the police. Um, so talk to me about like what, you know, what is, what's the, re- what's reality, what's perception? And, and of course, I know media works in a way to entertain us. Um, so there's got to be some of that. But what is it really like when you're exposed to that? Yeah. So Italy has been united for the last 150 years. So before that, there was different kingdoms in the north, including Rome, which was the capital. And then was what is called the reign of the two Sicily, where the Princess Margherita of Savoia was the queen, the queen of the reign of the two Sicily. That included all the south of Italy, going from basically Calabria, Puglia, uh, Basilicata, and Sicily, right? When they, uh, when Garibaldi basically chased out the Savoia and united Italy, by the way, Margherita of Savoia is where the Pizza Margherita name come from. If someone is wondering <laughs> where the name Margherita, Pizza Margherita come from, is because of the queen. Um, and uh, the pastry chef that commissioned a, a, a dish and he named the, the first pizza that was made was named after the queen. So when they, when the monarchy, when this monarchy left, it left uh, a land with no rules, right? And this is, happens a lot and it happens a lot as well uh, with the Soviet, with the collapse of the Soviet Union. There are always those three or four years where are, it's a wild west. You know, you really don't know who's governing you anymore. 
mafia fundamentally is a monarchy, right? You have the chief and then every chief has uh, the other chiefs below them and every chiefs below them have, you know, a squad of people that work for them, right? It's like, it, it, it's a kind of a monarchy system, let's say. It changed a lot, but at the beginning, it, it, it was like this. And every, let's say, chief has uh, a town or, or a territory. Or if you look, for example, in Naples, you call them squares or district, right? So every chief controls a part of the district. And obviously then, you know, what happens a lot of the times is that one person wants more, one person wants less, and then one person wants more of the other, what the other person wants. And then obviously there are the different fights between, between the factions. Because the government could not supply the people with jobs and with opportunities, mafia at the end of the day, or this criminal organization, was giving jobs to people. And people didn't care anymore. So if you go to Naples as well, there is a lot of normal people that work for, for the Camorra. Some, you know, they are killers. Some are just uh, accountants that are sent to Stanford University and Harvard to study because obviously they're managing a huge amount of money. And as a business, they deal with different things. So from drugs to racketeering to prostitution, I think at the very early days. Right now, I would say it's mainly cocaine and uh, speculations in uh, real estate. And the other things is the big one would be Toxic waste, you know? So anything that they can put their hands on to make money, you know, then they hire people to do the job. And these are normal people that they take from the South that have no jobs and no opportunities. And then they create a business. Mafia is a business. It's not, not nothing else. In fact, it's yeah. called the system now. The Sistema. Mm. If uh, someone wants to read a book, a really good book about uh, what Camorra is or what Mafia is, is Gomorra from uh, Roberto Saviano. And he really explains a lot of things. One thing, for example, yeah. not, not people know is that Camorra in Italy is really involved into high fashion. So they would buy, for example, Chinese and put them into slavery work into some place in Naples. And they found a lot of actually Chinese when they did uh, uh, raids, with police raids. And then they would just produce a very high-end garments sold to Italian, big Italian brands for a fraction of the cost. Yeah. So anything that can make money. Wow. Was, Did your father actually serve time or was he was sentenced? Yeah, he was sentenced twice. Yeah. First okay. time uh, he got two years and then house arrest. Uh, and then the second time uh, he got uh, another two years. Yeah. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, 
they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now, with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level, too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Wow. Well, you know, I wonder, one, what effect that had on you, particularly at that moment when your mom tells you the truth about all of this. And also, you mentioned that, you know, certain people didn't overcome that environment. And this is something that I've always wondered is like, what is it about certain people, particularly because you have a psychology background as well, that enables them to transcend their environment while others succumb to it? Because you could have easily ended up on the same path as your dad, but you didn't. I don't know. That's a really good question. Um, I don't know. I think I do a very good mom. You know, I think I had a very good mom and I was very creative as well. I've also been very creative. And I think creativity makes you use your imagination a lot. And then when you use your imagination a lot, you you default to imagine a different future for yourself. Yeah. And I think when you start imagining things and you, if you can think, you know, there is a saying, right? If you can think about something that you can do it and that and that's it. I think that's what it is. I was able to dream. I was dreaming a lot. I was dreaming of, you know, uh, Los Angeles and America and discovering the world. I was dreaming all these things. And, um, and then I wanted them. Yeah, I was like, I want yeah. them now. Well, yeah. So I one other question about Italian culture, and then we'll, we'll get into sort of breakdancing and your, your journey to America. I'm, I don't know if you ever saw it. Michael Moore did this documentary called Where to Invade Next. Uh, which yeah, I love it. It was kind yeah, of a, cool. Yeah, so he goes to Italy. And the picture he paints of Italy is this, you know, wildly sort of beautiful, 
leisurely thing where the workers are treated extremely well. They get one month of paid vacation every year. And he was showing, yes. you know, all these photos that they had an Italian couple. And these aren't like, you know, white collar wealthy people. They're blue collar, you know, people who have blue collar jobs, but they somehow are able to travel the world. And, you know, they, they're thinking that they want to come to America, but how, how accurate was the way he depicted that? Because he made it seem so appealing. Yeah, I think a lot of the documentaries do this. He's not lying, but he's uh, putting, it's, it's uh, focusing on a very small percentage of Italians. Yeah. Which are Italians that work for well-renowned factories with a long-term contract. Mm-hmm. For example, my aunt works for the government and it's like, it's amazing. She gets like one month of holidays and, you know, all, all of that, right? That's true. But that's not majority of Italians. Majority of Italians, like my mom, for example, that is on her sixties now, approaching her sixties, uh, she gets paid 1,300 euro a month still. And, uh, she doesn't know if she's going to work the next week or not. And she works, uh, with, uh, disabled kids in, in schools, right? Wow. And she's been doing this for, for ages and she has a degree. She's a pedagogist. So my sister, as she's 37 right now, she hadn't had a proper job in ages. I mean, she's constantly like moving from one job to another because they just don't give her that type of a contract. It's like yeah. if you get that contract, which is independent time. Yeah. I mean, you get your job for it. Like you have so many benefits, right? But just getting a job is hard. Yeah. You know, so. So yeah, I mean, he did. When, when I watched that, I was like, "Yeah, right." Yes, okay. well, yeah, I like kind of was like, like I because I, because I watched it, I was like, "I don't know." Yes, I mean, it's true, but it's literally like a very small percentage. And also, if you look at that, um, he's looking at two people, and I think they are on their late thirties, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, both with uh, long-term jobs with no kids. Yeah. Now, and also, he was, he was smart as well. He interviewed them in close to the, I think it was around Bologna or Modena. So they were living like in a, not in a big city. They were living like in a medium-sized city. Now, if you work for a factory in a medium-sized city and you have two people, right? You're probably, they're probably making two, 2000 euro each per month. That's 4k a month with yeah. a very low cost of living. Try to do that in Milan with a kid. <laughs> it's like where the cost of living is four times more. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I've been to Milan. I've been to Cinque Terre. I've been to Rome, if I remember correctly. And I spent one night in Florence. Yes. Yeah, it's not and cheap. So, yeah. Like, it's not. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, I, I, I'm aware. <laughs> well, all right. So, so, how does, so talk to me about breakdancing like what is it about breakdancing in particular that drew you to it like how does a guy who studies psychology in college decide to pursue a career as a professional breakdancer oh i started when i was uh 12 11 years old yeah like 12 no i think it was 12 yeah so so tell yeah, me about was, the, the moment the- you fell in love with this thing like what was it that drew you to it oh it just was it was belonging you belong to someone and you're not bored so instead of going around and steal stuff and you know just like the district that i that i that i come from it wasn't that great and i wasn't hanging out with the best people 
And I think at that age, you just want to belong. And uh, I was always a good kid, but I think it was, I, I was drawn as well into, I was feeling very lonely as well at the time. I was going through obviously stuff because of my dad and everything. You have so much rage inside you, so much energy. You just want to put them in into the wrong things. And then suddenly a guy came over and um, a friend of mine was like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm tonight, I'm, I'm going into, you know, the, the, the mall because the mall was closing. And, uh, yeah, we are, we are going dancing there. And, and it's just, it's just, I just loved it. There was the music and there was lots of kids my age and all coming from kind of the same districts. And then you start really getting into it and then you're pushing each other and then you do the competitions and yeah, that, that's developed then. And, and I, I wouldn't say it took me out of the streets, but it, it really gave me something else to do with my time rather than, you know, maybe the bad stuff. Well, talk to me about the craft itself, because I'll tell you, like, when you say the word breakdancing, the first memory that comes to mind for me from when I was growing up um, was a Michael Jackson sort of, you know, video. And I remember some kid apparently broke mm. his neck breakdancing. Uh, and mm. I, you know, you may have to fact check me on that, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. So obviously there it sounds like you have to be able to use and move your body in really complicated ways. So, so talk to me about the, the process of learning, like what goes on there in terms of practice, discipline, craft, and all that stuff. Yeah, so I think breakdancing, you can divide it into, there is a part that is obviously acrobatics, and then yeah. there is uh, footwork where you, you, you are on the ground, you, you are dancing on the ground. And... And then you mix acrobatics together with, uh, with footwork, which it's, it's, it's hard to explain what footwork is. And then there is a whole part of the hip hop, which is, it's because hip hop is, it's, I never say it was music, hip hop is a culture. And then within hip hop, you have, you know, the, let's say different branches, especially like even in dancing. Then you have all the old school stuff, which is, uh, pop, popping, locking and waving, which is the one that you see when people are like, look like robots, et cetera. Right? Uh, and then obviously break dancing when you are on the ground and there is the part of acrobatics. And then within the acrobatics, you can see a lot of moves that are taken from, um, from, uh, gymnastics, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, Thomas or the windmill, et cetera. Um, uh, and adapted obviously to, to, to dance. Yeah. So the, the cool thing, I think what get me hooked is the process of, Failing, 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 failing until you, until you don't, right? And then yeah. you finally succeed because there are some moves that you, you can practice them for like three months just to get it right. Like literally three hours a day, four hours a day. You just do one thing and you try to try to try. That has always been me. I think it's, it's, it's part of me. And I think that's why I ended up to be a decent entrepreneur because I get obsessed by things. And until I get it right, I just uh, push myself to the limits, which obviously, Sometimes it's not good because, you know, you can hurt yourself. And I think I learned as well. <laughs> actually, when I'm talking to you, I realize the similarities actually haven't changed. I'm still my, I'm, I'm still 12 years old. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Try too much and then uh, break myself. Well, you know, I, I think there is something there about sort of the willingness to persist. Like I learned this from, you know, being a musician where same thing, like my band director were like, you're not doing this one thing right. And I would obsess over it until I got nailed it, right? It was like one measure in an entire piece. It's like, this is four beats. Um, 
to this day, I'll never forget this because like it was one of those very transformative lessons of um, accuracy. Because like he would say, okay, he was like, here's what you're going to do. And he was like, we're going to cut the tempo down to like 40, like half of what it's supposed to be played at. And, you know, this is what it's out. He's like, this is what the professional tuba player on the addition tape sounds like. And he's like, it doesn't matter if you're going to be fast. What matters here is if you're accurate. And so he made me play it. And he said, and you're going to try out for all region band this way. And only one other kid beat me. I was second and I missed all state by one chair. But it was amazing because he forced me to slow it the hell down. And for like probably a good month and a half, we did that. And then when we got to the point where it was time for like a week or two before the All-State auditions, he's like, all right, let's go back to the normal speed now. And it was really bizarre because I was able to do it. Yeah, no, it's the same. I, I play too, by the way. I, st- I studied oh, I studied music. Okay. What did you play? Uh, guitar. Okay. I studied for like uh, eight years. So it's, it's what I remember when I was studying solos, it's very similar to learning an acrobatic move. So the way you learn an acrobatic move, you sometimes you just break it in, uh, let's say the full move which is a loop, right? Usually an acrobatic movie, it's, it's, it's a loop that keeps on going. Um, you, you break it down in three parts, let's say. So you try the first part and then you stop. And then you try the second part and you stop. And then you try to bring everything together. And the hard bits is moving from one part to another. And I remember studying guitar solos and doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like you, you, you have the first part, the first riff, and then you have to maybe slide it down in a different scale. So you try the scale and then you try to, it's the passage between the one and the other. That's I know what you mean. It's yeah, I, well, I don't have the dexterity. I tried to learn guitar when I was like probably five, six years back. And I was like, man, I used to be able to move my fingers so fast when I played an instrument. Like I was like, that, that yeah. is definitely the, the hard part about that. So the thing that I wonder, right, is you mentioned that this made you a, a good entrepreneur. We'll talk about that. But I think what's more interesting is, you know, that ability to stick with something uh, far past where the average person would quit. Like, one, do you think that the way that you were raised has any had any influence on that? And if so, if not, then, you know, is this something that people can build or you think it's innate to people, this ability to persist? I discovered last year that is because I'm bipolar. I'm bipolar type 2. And this is like 101, a part of my mental illness let's say the superpower of my mental illness because every mental illness has some, some sort of, Aristotle say there is always um, a bit of madness in very creative people, right? Yeah. That's right, the sentence from Aristotle. But be, being extremely creative, uh, very much part of bipolar and extreme resilience, extreme resilience and hyper-focus and obsession is part of being bipolar as well. And so that's what I would do. I would get obsessed about things and I would erase everything else and just like hyper focus on something until I get it right. Yeah. So yeah, what made me amazing, but also obviously you, you take a toll on that as well. It's not well just yeah, because I, I think that, the, you know, Stephen Kotler had told me this when he had studied some of the highest performers in the world. He said that there's this sort of myth that you have to fix what's broken. But what he discovered was in reality, most of these people are running away from something just as much as they're running towards something. Um, which yes. really stay with me, but there's also, to your point, like a darker side to this. So talk to me about that. Like, I mean, if you're bipolar, what are the, the, the darker sides of this and how does that play out? Yeah. So bipolar type two means that I go through phases of hypomania where that would be the phase where I can work maybe 17 hours straight and I would have hyper focus and I would just 
have also extreme empathy as well. I'm really good at reading people, creativity a lot. Um, I would speak very fast. I would, yeah, it's cool. I love it. I mean, shouldn't say that, but oh, I actually love my manic phases. I would sleep maybe five hours a night and just like my brain just is on fire. But then I obviously have to go to depressive phases as well. And that's, and that's the bad ones yeah. where, you know, you just don't see just the opposite where I wouldn't speak to anyone and I just sleep 14 hours a day. Now I did realize that I cannot take medications because the moment I take medications, my YM gets lost and my creativity is, is gone and I cannot live without my brain, you know, because mm -hmm. what, what medication do they mellows you out, right? So they kind of create a, this neutral state where I would not have these phases where I have this burst of creativity and I get to create and, and do what I love, but at the same time, I don't get the down phases. So I was, I'm able to manage it now by avoiding the depressive phases. I'm mailing in hypomanic phases a lot of the times, but, mm. but I'm, I'm able to control them. Um, a lot of mindfulness and, uh, and lifestyle, lifestyle choices as well. Yeah. Like anything that could bring me down, I try to avoid. And I see that that's, that's helping me a lot. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, so, I mean, it sounds to me like what we're talking about here is navigating high performance with bipolar disorder. Like if, if I were to like identify a theme of this conversation, um, but yeah. before we get into to the startup piece, let's start to, you know, with your arrival in New York. So I'm always interested in immigrant experiences, being an immigrant myself. Tell me first about the things that you found to be a culture shock, like things that you found funny, things that you found ridiculous, having, you know, never left Italy before. And then talk to me about the, the journey of trying to pursue a career in breakdancing. Because as you and I know, and I know this is a creative, like any career in the arts is pretty much a situation where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. Yeah. So I arrived in New York in 2003. So I don't know if anyone of the listeners is in New York or was in New York during the time. But... New York in 2003, it was two years after the World Trade Center, right? So the atmosphere was definitely still very much, and it was the war as well, like the beginning of the war in Afghanistan, uh, in a very democratic, you know, let's say a Republican country with a Republican president at the time of Bush. Um, and I arrived, I couldn't afford, I, I didn't have a lot of money, so I got a room into, I got like something that I found. I found on, on, I found it on, uh, what was it? Craigslist. Yeah. Craigslist. And like, I never been anywhere. Right. And I was like, okay, I just get it here. And it was actually fairly dangerous neighbors. I remember arriving. I was like, holy shit, this is like the movies. Right. And I think on the second, on the second night, I was hearing like a gunshot and stuff. And I was like, this is like, it's bad. You know, this is like, this is bad. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in like, uh, yeah, but like Italy, Italy dangerous is not New York dangerous. To me, I was really shocked. I was like, I thought America was the 
place where everyone is good. And I saw a lot of poverty, like a lot of poverty, like proper poverty. A lot of people with mental illnesses just wandering around the place. And I felt very uneasy a lot of the times. And I was like, this is not a third world country to me. I'm sorry to say, but it didn't feel like it. I was shocked. I was really, really shocked. Especially where I was. I was in Brooklyn around Bedford. Um, kind of close to Williamsburg in 2003. Now Williamsburg is super hip, you know, super cold. But at the time it wasn't, especially around, it wasn't, it wasn't that safe. People in the neighborhood though, they would really like me. I mean, I was a white kid, but I wasn't, wasn't going around like in, you know, I was having my hip hop style. So, and I knew how to navigate the streets a little bit. And I knew how to read people. So I never had any trouble. Um, never. I was coming home at 4 a.m. in the morning because I was working in the bar as a cocktail bartender. I'm never, nothing ever happened to me. But a lot of the time I felt, I felt, I felt unease. And I really felt sad a lot of the time. I saw proper poverty. Like when you go like in Fifth Avenue or when you go in Soho, everything was amazing. But then some areas were like, you, I'd never, I'd never seen something like this in my life. Yeah. What about the, the sort of breakdancing career? I uh, like, you know, you pursue, how do you go from pursuing a career in breakdancing to becoming an entrepreneur and doing startups? Oh, yeah, that's a long one. I mean, I, I broke my part of my ankle, um, while I was breakdancing. So I had to give up acrobatics, but I didn't want to give up the whole, um, the whole thing. So I started to pivoting, let's say, into, um, popping, locking, and old school, like dancing, not, not on the ground, you know, removing all the acrobatics. And that obviously allowed me as well to become a dancer, um, and to audition at the Broadway Dance School. And then I got into the Broadway Dance School and I started studying in, um, I started studying there. How I, why I gave up, it was because I was moved away from my bubble, which is the Italian breakdancing scene or the Italian dancing scene. And I started to study with people from all over the world. And, and literally I was like, I was, I always been a bit competitive and I was crushed. Like there was like people there were incredible, incredible, especially the Koreans and the Japanese. I remember thinking, if I don't dedicate 10 years of my life to this, sorry, 10 years a day, every day to this, I will never go into. I'm never going to be at that, at that level. And if I cannot be at that level, I just might chase something else. And I was in New York and I just blown away. I was like, okay, I, I, I'm not coming back ever. I want to see the world. I know New York is not going to be for me. I, I know I'm going to move away eventually, but I'm not coming home. I was like, I'm not coming home. And in fact, I didn't. I moved to Australia. And, um, when I moved to Australia, I moved to Australia following a girl. She dumped me. When I arrived, so I didn't have a place to stay. That was weird. Um, then yeah, I got, got a job, got a job in Australia. And then, um, I met these guys that, um, I met these guys that were, um, having like a, they had an apartment and they were, uh, fire jugglers. Uh, so they were playing with fire and I got, I got really into like, um, uh, juggling with fire, like uh, with chains. Um, also because of my dancer background, it, was, it got really, really easy and I got really good. 
And then uh, I, they were like, why, why didn't you come performing with us? We are touring for, uh, for about a year. We're going to go around Australia as a traveling circus uh, to perform. And I was like, yeah, sounds amazing. Yeah. Also because my visa were a little bit murky. I couldn't get a job. Uh, so cashing in sounded great at the time. And um, I just pursued this vagabond lifestyle of nomads. I wanted, I wanted to be a nomad. I didn't want to be attached to anything or anyone. I just wanted to travel the world and see the world. And I think that at the time, the digital nomads lifestyle was starting to pick up. And I was like, I cannot get, like, remote work wasn't an option. It's not like now. There was, like, you didn't work remotely. Like, there was no one that worked remotely. I didn't know anyone that was working remotely. You have a job. And I was like, I don't want to be a waiter for the rest of my life. I don't want to, obviously, being on a circus for the rest of my life, but I want to travel. So what I'm going to do, maybe I can start an internet business on my own so I can have my own business and travel around the world. And that's what I did. Wow. Well, you know, I, I know from just having read a bit about you that you've also advised startups, you've talked to founders. Um, you know, the, like you said, you have this bizarre sort of vagabond lifestyle combined with, you know, like elements of high performance in a wide variety of fields. So one thing I always wonder is how each thing influences the next, because I'm imagining many of the lessons that you learned, you know, from breakdancing to all the other jobs that you had probably had a profound impact on, you know, you as an entrepreneur. Like, what of that do you bring into your work in your life today? Yeah, so I started in e-commerce and I love commerce because I got to, to sell products. And I think I love psychology because I wanted to help people or impact in people's life in some way. And I think I always found a way for every business that I had in commerce or every store that I, that I, that I built and products that I built to impact people in, in, in their life. Um, I deviated from that and ended up working in commerce, making quite a bit of money but selling garbage, which made me quite a bit of money, but it didn't make me really happy. And so I started to understand that uh, I love I love complicated things. So I love when I can take very, something very complicated and, and simplify it. And I love building things because I love to create. And to me, it was getting a company from zero, creating a store, creating the name, and then developing a product range. It could be a supplement. It could be uh, a fashion item, it could be anything. It was just like some, this is nothing and then there is something. And then I take this and I sell it to people and then I make them happy, whatever it is. That was always exciting to me. At the moment I removed that, for example, when I started drop shipping, um, I completely removed that. I made money because creating something costs money and drop shipping allowed to actually not be tied to stock, right? So as a business model, it was much more profitable and made more sense, but it didn't really make me happy. But, uh, but yeah, it is more profitable. It was more profitable. Well, you also, the, like, you, you built multiple companies from what, what I've gathered. Um, I know that you have also advised, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of founders and, you know, throughout our conversation, we have been talking about sort of a combination of, of factors, right? Like growing up in adversity, navigating bipolar disorder, having this wide variety of interests. Um, and I remember very distinctly Y Combinator released their entire curriculum as a podcast. And the very last lecture uh, is with Sam Altman, where he talks about how things change when you get bigger, you become more successful. And he said, people think it gets better, but it gets worse. 
Um, and so he, he gives this entire, you know, one hour lecture on the role of, of managing your psychology, which it sounds to me like 95% of being a founder is that part of it. All the rest of the execution stuff, it's like if you can get that part right, the other half is, the other 5% is actually manageable. Um, but talk to me about that aspect of it, not just from your personal perspective, but in the people that you have worked with. How do people who get to that sort of, you know, level of what we sort of think of is, okay, that's the pinnacle of success, which, you know, I think from all the conversations I've had, we see something and, you know, by the time we get it, it's not what it actually, what we thought it would be. But what is it about these types of founders, like based on the people you've worked with, like how do they manage their psychology and what differentiates them between the people who, from, from the people who just, you know, go bust? Yeah, I don't think like I'm embarrassed. I mean, the last company we couldn't close another funding round, so we had to shut down, and that was in November last this year, like uh, four months ago. Um, I think, I think the issue is like we live in a society where we are driven by money, but now money became a goal. But the issue with money is that the moment you make the money that you want, the moment you achieve the goal, a goal achieved is no longer motivating. And this is a hard truth. It's true. A goal achieved is no longer motivating. You need another goal, right? And so I see these founders coming in. It's like, oh, when I make a million, I'm going to be happy. And then you make a million and they uh, made a million. Okay, well, so what's next? What's next? You don't realize that happiness in the pursuit is not actually in the moment that you get something, right? So I always stress, and it sounds a bit of a cliche, of focusing on the journey. If you're here for the money, forget it. You have to love the game. And you're here for the game. So for me, it was always been finding what I call like the big why, which is a goal that can never be achieved. Because if you have a goal that can never be achieved, it's going to keep on motivating you. And everything that you do in your life is whatever fails, even if it fails or if it doesn't, it serves a bigger purpose that allows you to move always forward. And uh, that makes you happy because you're not just focusing on money. Money becomes a means to an end. It's like saying racing Money is the pressure that allow you to uh, go in the trip that you want, but it's not the destination. You know, you're using money to to go travel, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, so you just mentioned that you know you you closed a startup in November after running out of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk to me about the, the the sort of psychology of managing that, particularly given you, know, you mentioned bipolar disorder and these sort of you know extreme bouts of work, and then you know sort of the depressive bouts as well. How do you come out of something like that? Because like to me, I'm just like, wow, that to, to have taken somebody's money, not be able to raise it, not return the money, which happens all the time. I know that. In fact, all the time, of course, yeah. I, it, it ha- you know, well, like I'm pretty sure like if, if I viewed my public, my, my writing career from that standpoint, I'd be like, all right, I have actually gotten an investor's money who invested in my book and I wasn't able to pay it back. Nothing happened. Um, but it just seems so defeating to to get to that point, especially when you're having to literally shut something down. Yeah, the hardest thing was the people, you know, because obviously you feel responsible to the people that work for you. Uh, but then again, within, I think, three weeks, everyone got jobs uh, because we were able to support them. I don't actually feel guilty. I'm sorry to say, but a lot of the times, investors don't, investors don't really care. Yeah. Investors don't care if you fail or not. They don't. They don't give a shit. They don't care about you. All they care is returning money to their fund. That's the whole point of, that's, that's their job. 
their job is returning money to their funds. If they return money to the fund with 2% of the startup and then 98% of the startup burned to the ground, it doesn't really matter. The fund made the return. So I think we live in a world in venture capital where they will push you to the limits. And I don't understand this because if you push a founder to the limit without actually considering their mental health, and in venture capital, mental health doesn't exist. Like they they don't they don't care. Actually, it is a sign of weakness. Don't ever say, oh, I'm depressed or I'm bipolar or uh like you know, it's 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 bad. Which it shouldn't, but it is. Yeah. And I feel that I don't understand because if you're investing in a horse, right, to win a race, would you know us taking care of that horse? <laughs> would you 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 wouldn't just like ride that horse until until it's gone. But I yeah. think I think the, what's happening is like maybe worse. It works like this. They push everyone and then who burns, burns and who uh, doesn't burn makes all the money back. But we are uh, parts, founders that enter into venture capital. And I'm not talking about all venture capital because I'm not trying to generalize here. But there is a lot of good venture capitals and angels round syndicates completely different. Generalizing. But I'm I, I felt a lot of the times that uh, that there is this hypocrisy where we are they are there to fund your ideas and your vision, when in reality it's just to return the money to the investors. And the moment they stop believing in you or there is a better idea coming up, aka for example, there is an AI wave, so they want to start to invest in that, then they're just gonna drop you and then move to the next thing. Yeah. I I remember I think hearing Peter Thiel on a lecture saying like they the sort of goal basically is to find one investment that returns the entire value of the rest of the portfolio sure. combined. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah. It's it's sophisticated betting, right? So you're like, I'm gonna make ten bets and out of these ten bets, three are gonna IPO. And if these three IPO, they're gonna make the fund back. Now, it makes sense if you are a psychopath like Peter Thiel is, which is, I admire Peter Thiel for a lot of things, but his wife said he's a psychopath and there's nothing wrong with that. Yep. <laughs> but, uh, but he is. Um, yeah, I mean, that's cool, but you have people behind it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's people, humans, like humans like me that puts three years of their life into it. Yeah. And yeah, and th- there is well, humans and jobs and families and... Yeah, <laughs> it's the same thing with publishing. And, like, uh, I, I mean, yeah. I, you know, we raised a round of venture yeah. money when uh, Radio Public launched their, you know, uh, venture fund for podcasts. So, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like, I, I think about that every day. And, and you're publishing is the same thing. My joke with publishing is they basically give people like me book deals and Tim Ferriss and Michelle Obama take make up for the losses they take on all the rest of us. I think it's the game. They get, like, I'm not saying we should change things, mm-hmm. but I think they should. Maybe there is a more holistic way to, to do it, or there is maybe a way where we can put expectations a little bit uh, more into perspective and and glorify. I think glorifying glorifying raising capital, glorify all that is wrong. A lot mm-hmm. of people came to me. I built businesses bootstrap to sixty million in revenue in two years. No one said well done. Then I raised three point five million from venture capital with the peer stack, and people were like, "Congratulations!" And I was like, "Congratulations for what? I didn't build shit." Right? Yeah, I didn't that's... miss anything. I didn't do anything. Why are you congratulating yeah. me? Oh, because it's a big achievement. A big achievement for what? I was like, I didn't, I didn't succeed. I raised from, from the <laughs> investor. What, what is the achievement? I could not see the achievements. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I didn't like to me, achieving something is when, when make a profitable business. So to me, totally. this was a total failure. Yeah. yeah. Achieve anything. Well, it's funny because I, I had a, uh, an old mentor, you know, here in, in Colorado. He told me that he saw some guys out, you know, celebrating for lunch and they were both having lunch and he was like, you know, what are you guys celebrating? And there's just two founders and, you know, and the guy who walked up to them to ask was an investor. And he was like, what the fuck are you guys celebrating for? This is literally the worst day of your life. You have no idea what's about to happen. Um, yeah. like I'm paraphrasing, but in, in reality is like, yeah, to your point, right? It, it's, it, it kind of gives the, like to, it, give, it creates a sort of false sense of accomplishment. Um, cause I remember even talking to Dennis, the founder of mem.ai, uh, which is the tool that I use for everything. And he's like, you got to remember, he said, yeah, it looks all impressive on paper. He's like, it's not my money. I have a business to build still. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, know. It's all on paper, right? I, I was, I, do you remember the scene from, from, um, the walls of Wall Street in when he goes to lunch with uh, Matthew McConaughey? Yeah. Of right. Course. And then he, he, Matthew McConaughey explains him how the, the investment world works, right? And he's like, yeah, I mean, you have these people, you get them rich. They think they're getting rich on paper. Why we take the hard cash in commissions? And if someone wants to take the money away from the fund, you don't let them take them out. You make them reinvest them. Why? Because they're addicted. <laughs> you know, they're addicted to, to making money, even though everything is on paper. I mean, my company was what, what, 20? $2 million. I had 40% mm. of shares. So in theory, my net worth was about 12 million. That's evaporated within a week. The moment I said, we can't raise any more capital. So we have to shut down. Wow. It's all on paper. So a lot of the times they're like, Hey, don't pay yourself enough. And this is what venture tells you tell a lot. I, I looked a lot of founders and I didn't listen because I was like, I'm paying myself enough at, at least to have a decent life because I'm working 17 hours a day. There's no way I'm going to extremely underpay myself. I mean, I paid myself half of what I would have made if I just go working for someone else, obviously, but I paid yeah. myself something. And when ventures say, oh, we expect founders not to pay themselves because, you know, they, they, their net worth, they, their worth is, is in stock. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Why, why, why are you, like, why are you talking about? It's like, so you want this guy to work 17 hours a day, build a successful business, not paying themselves, starve themselves, what do you think are the chances of this guy actually making it through? You know, like no. I, some, sometimes it, it baffles me, you know? Mm. Well, I mean, based I on this experience, like you've had, it sounds like, you know, a situation where you grew up quite poor, you've accumulated wealth, you've seen your net worth evaporate. So what is your perspective on money and wealth? Like particularly with time and age, how has that changed and how has that informed your definition of success? I realize that uh, money is addictive. So it's 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 like a drug. Handle we care, let's say. Mm. And uh, the more money you make, the more you want to make them, and then you lose you lose track of the most valuable resource that you can never get it back, which is time. And then when you turn forty-one, like me now, you realize, holy oh, shit, I lost so much time. And you realize how much money do I need to actually be happy? Yeah. And I realize that I probably need much less than I, than I wanted. It's like, do I need $10 million? Probably not. And also it's like, do I want my daughter to grow up in a privileged position where most of the people that grew up in privilege, they are depressed, 
super depressed because they live out of their parents' money and they have not been able to accomplish anything. Because I know happiness comes from achieving something, a struggle, right? Happiness doesn't come when someone gives you something without putting any effort into it. So to me, it was like, maybe I want to leave my daughter, I don't know, 40K, 50K. That's more than enough to travel the world if you want or buy a house or whatever you need. The rest is is on you. I grew up with nothing, I turned out, okay? I don't want, obviously, my daughter to do the same, but... And then I realized, how much money do I need to be happy without working so much that I can actually spend time to do things that I love that make me happy? That's my... That's why I changed. So two final questions. You alluded to sort of the coming wave of AI, and you know, I just wonder what your take is on all of this. What do you see uh, from a big picture level? Like, how is this going to impact our lives when it comes to commerce and in sort of personal growth? Yeah, so I actually embraced a little bit like the old AI movement, and um, I started to use it for uh, understanding my disorder better, my being bipolar. And a friend of mine was diagnosed with bipolar. We're both uh, founders. We both closed our startup as well. And launched, uh, we, we decided to build an LLM for people with bipolar to make better prediction, especially when it comes down to depression, um, because uh, depression leads to high rates of suicide and also to create basically an app that allows people to uh, chat with uh, a very, let's say, you can call it a companion that is very knowledgeable about bipolar. Um, it can actually help you also to self-manage. Let's say you want to try to ease down your medication or you want to try some self-management things that don't rely just on medication, for example, or when you want to you sh- to share your data as well with your friends and family so they know when you are going through um, phases of manic phases or depressive phases so they can make interventions accordingly. And yeah, we just, we just build it out and we're actually raising right now like a small angel round is not through a venture, it's just literally to people that believe in the mission and collaborating with various universities. And the big opportunity that I saw with AI is that for the first time, I was like, we're going to be able to collect so much data from or people from all over the world, and then we can use this data to apply machine learning to empower psychiatrists and anyone to make better predictions on medication treatments or policies and et cetera. And that was, I go back to my roots. I went back to what I love the most, which is helping people and my background as well in psychology, I think I danced around this, funnily enough, uh, <laughs> I danced around this, maybe like very similar to when I was break dancing. I danced around this for 15 years, you know, and I denied myself the, the opportunity to actually work in something that I'm passionate about. And when my startup closed, I was like, okay, this is the time. This is the last time. And so this is the time. I don't want, I don't think I've, in the next 10 years, I will want to start something from zero to one again. Uh, but uh, I felt really compelled. And yeah, here we are. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights. Where can people find out more? Oh, Josh, make a cut here. Sorry. Um, I have one final yeah. question for you. Um, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable? Yeah. Um, can you define them unmistakable in your? Yeah. Um, when you write a book called unmistakable, you have to define it. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's how publishing <laughs> works. Uh, 
So I define unmistakable as something that is so distinctive that you are the only person who could have done it. And it's immediately recognized as something that you did. Huh. Good point. So what makes someone unmistakable? I think just being themselves. Raw. Filtered. Without trying to emulate others and tell your story and for the way it is and just be yourself. Because every one of us, me included, yourselves, and all your listeners, we're all unique. So we are within ourselves, unmistakable. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and everything else you're up to? I'm big on LinkedIn. I post a lot about my journey. Uh, and uh, if you want to learn about me, uh, you can go on Matteo Rassi, which is my name and surname, Doco. But I think LinkedIn is probably the easiest one. And then I have a link tree with, uh, you can stalk me a little bit on the things that I do, the documentaries. You can check out my music, the music that I produce, um, and all the other stuff that I do. And I don't, uh, uh, you know, crash and burn startups. <laughs> Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolves. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.